Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. 2019's Ready or Not, or the Connor Habib Trilogy. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fantastic, hopefully fantastic, I realize I might have jumped the gun with that one, um, another fantastic episode of Horror Vanguard. I am your producer and co-ghost, Ash, joined, as always, by John. How's it going, John? Good, good. Glad to be back. And we we have we have another fantastic guest that we definitely didn't have on uh, last last week. How's it going, Connor? <laughs> <laughs> Good. How are you guys doing? Great. <laughs> uh, it is it is extremely exciting that Connor is back to uh, I, as I said to finish the trilogy to finish the the, right. the trilogy of episodes with Connor Habib. Um, nailing, nailing the hat. I trick. love how I'm like. It's decided that I won't be invited back. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, like the, um, like that's the let's keep going. Well, I, I mean, we we just to finish this off to just just end it to stop this. To kill it, we might have to do like to throw it in a well with corpses with arrows. Uh, we, we might have to do like uh, a sequel trilogy and then like a prequel trilogy with you as well. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the original, and then we then we have uh, uh, Return of the Phantom Connor, uh, Attack of the Clone Connors. I think that's going to be my favorite. Yeah, then it's going to be like um, Connor Connor Habib on Hereditary Three: The Desolation of Snow. <laughs> That, that that podcast will be nine hours long and people nine will hate it. <laughs> we, we we need we need to do like a Kickstarter for the three hundred million dollars CG budget for that one. <laughs> ah yes. So But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about something completely different. <laughs> uh, what are we here to talk about today, Ash? Uh, we are talking about the uh, 20, 2019 film Ready or Not. Uh, I am extremely excited about this. This is going to be great. Um, I, 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 I think sometimes that it's it's really easy to get more excited about the uh, uh, episodes where we talk about a film which is bad, like Rob Zombie's Halloween or uh, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Black Christmas uh, than it is to talk about films which are really great like uh, 2019's Ready or Not um, but but before we hmm. before we jump into uh, I'm, I'm kidding I actually thought that Halloween and Black Christmas were okay uh, but before we before we jump into into the, the the discourse Ash what's Ready or Not about? In the long and labyrinthian story of human experience, the Faustian bargain has lapped at our every footstep with the umbral flame of hope. Would you trade your immortal soul away for a threadbare simulacra of peace in the eternal moment? After all, is it not as Camus recognized in the myth of Sisyphus? There is no fate that cannot be surmounted by scorn. Eternal hellfire is devoid of hope, and in that absurdity there is a peace far greater than in, than in the raking coals of earthly life. On that subject, anecdotes tell us that St. Augustine knew best how to rake heretics over the coals, but the other that joins force with the demonic other is far more divine than the ossified hands of power. These mortal souls, in a pain beyond pain, found kinship in the bond with the demonic. The lowly see themselves in the spirit of Nikolai Abraham Abelgard's The Nightmare, and the Dukes Astaroth and Dantalion and King Belial of the Lesser Key of Solomon, 
as well as the Prime Minister Lucifuge Raphael, as known to Le Dragon Rouge. It is upon this common ground that deals have been struck. The sublime paintings of Johann Christoph Heisman, the virtuosity of Tartini and Pagani, to the much more modern Robert Johnson, who, legend says, met the devil at the crossroads and exchanged his forlorn soul for the agonized beauty of the blues. Today's film, 2019's Ready or Not, presents us with these same eternal questions of power, the other, and the demonic. It asks us, if you sold your soul, would you give, the, would you give something beautiful to the world, or would you hoard nothing but wealth and shame? I, 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 you know, slow clap. I, you know, I, I, I was, I was expecting, I was expecting, I was expecting jokes. I was expecting, I was not expecting to be moved. I was not expecting to like, that was, that was goddamn poetic. That, that's what that was. It really reminded me of my own compact with the devil. So I really appreciate <laughs> the way you frame that. Uh, <laughs> then, then let's, let's talk about ready or not. Um, and where where sh- where should we begin? Well, should we say what happened really quickly? Uh, yeah, we should actually. Like, yeah. So, yeah. Someone who can actually summarize <laughs> films, please do. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's uh, that's normally your gig, Ash. But yeah, we can do that. John, <laughs> if you would be so kind, uh, what actually happens during this movie? <laughs> okay, so. Uh, it's it is it's a it's it's the film that happens at the end of the rom com. Uh, so, so uh, Samara Weaving plays uh, Grace, who is from uh, what's implied to be a pretty rough, like working class foster care background. Has met and is uh, getting ready to get married uh, to Alex, who is part of the Lodomas board game. Uh, dynasty. They're having a big wedding at the family house. The family seems uh, weird, to be honest. Uh, they're not that into. They're not that into her marrying into the family. Uh, there's a tradition that uh, at, on on the night that somebody marries into the family, they have to play a game. Uh, you draw a card from a from a special box, and the card will say what game you have to play. Uh, Grace draws the card. Uh, hide and seek and so it turns out that this is the this card drawing only this card the card that is very seldom drawn by by new members of the family means that uh the family uh have to track her down uh, and kill her before the end of the night uh and that is where the story starts and i think that probably tells you enough about where this film is going to go right all right <laughs> um yeah, I, I mean, there's so much to sort of go into with this movie. And, um, you know, my <clears throat> my childhood friend has a podcast called Horror Homeroom, which is a great uh, horror podcast. But one of the things that she said on it was like, oh, well, all the other hosts are always thinking about class, but I'm always thinking about family, you know, when I look at horror narratives. And so I think that I was sort of looking for cues in that of which way to go with this, because we can really talk about class when we watch this movie. And in fact, it's really explicitly um, drawn out. You know, there's a a scene where uh, there's a scene. Fuck. I, you know, Grace. Yeah. It's very funny that I forgot her name because I just keep (laughs) wanting to call her Samara. Um, But anyway, Grace, 
<clears throat> runs out towards the, you know, the, maybe three-fourths of the way in, sort of escapes the family and runs out into the middle of the road. And a guy drives past her and, you know, in an expensive car and tells her to fuck off, basically, and won't pick her up. You know, and that sort of iconic moment from Texas Chainsaw Massacre where the trucker, will, you know, picks the... Mm the beleaguered heroine up but like in this case it's like you know rich guy and she's like what the fuck is wrong with rich people right so and in many cases like this class dimension is really brought out but i kind of was looking for some foothold as to whether or not i should think about this as a critique of family or a critique of you know class relations and of course it's both but like what is really the sort of underlying thing here and um it brings me to a scene that i would love to talk about maybe um, at the top where so after uh, Grace draws the card from this um, box that sort of reminds you of Lamarckin's box from Hellraiser um, the, she draws a hide and seek card and <clears throat> at a certain point she, you know, she finds out <laughs> uh, that they're going to kill her because she doesn't know at first she's just innocently hiding but her husband Alex uh, pulls her into the basement after she sees somebody getting shot in front of her um, who's mistaken for her, one of the help, which I'm sure you guys will talk about a bit. Mm-hmm. But they're in the basement corridors or the servants' corridors or whatever. And um, she is, you know, sort of yelling at him, like, why the fuck did you not say anything? And he says to her, you know, if I would have told you about this, you would have left me. If I would have told you that this was my family tradition, that, <laughs> you know, we had to do this, you would have left me. And if I didn't propose, you would have left me. And at that point, it's really interesting because this sort of like sympathetic score music comes in yeah. when he says that. So it's like very tense. And then it's supposed to be this sort of like sweet moment, right? Um, and I thought, okay, well, here's this again, like which which way do I go with this? There's this class dimension where it's like, you know, the rich feel like they don't even have to talk about their circumstances or contend with them mm. ever. You know, like and we can talk about that in reference to the monarchy bullshit that's going on right now. <laughs> oh, but like the rich don't ever feel like they have to contend with their circumstances. So it's like, well, I, if I if if I told her she would have left me, it's like, well, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what happens. Like you, you might not get to be in love like other people. But then I realized, whoa, like the real overriding factor here is actually this model of family that's like you have to get married to the person you love and you have to stay with them. When in fact, the other siblings who his siblings had married these people that are kind of like oafs, you know, one's an oaf, one's a gold digger, you know, as, as she's framed, at least in the beginning, they're unhappy in their marriages. It's like marry somebody you don't love and then have and be in love and have a passionate affair with someone else or be polyamorous and just not get married to somebody else or whatever it is. But that's actually not even an option. Whereas the sort of like relinquishing of wealth is in a way almost an option here. Um, and so I, it sort of carried that tension and that was the only place where I saw it sort of step over into like, oh, this actually might be about family more than it's about class. Um, cause the ultimate decision was made around sort of staying in the terms of monogamous picture of getting married and, you know, that kind of relationship, which I realize is woven into class in all sorts of ways. But that gave me a little bit of a purchase. Yeah, no, I really like I one of the reasons I really like this film a lot is that I think it makes explicit the idea that that family is not distinct from the social relations that that is a class society. 
there is a, there is a particular kind of kind of family unit which is uh, determined in part by the economic realities of capitalism. And I think this film is really really good at driving this home because uh, I think that moment is is really interesting because uh, you have all of these filmic cues that are like oh they're going to escape together they're gonna like he's gonna realize that actually his true family is is her. Uh, and that is that is not what happens. And you you realize that basically the film is all about making this person who uh, is presented as like the good guy. He's the he's the nice one in the family. They're all so glad that like mm-hmm. he's now back home and he's brought somebody great. Like revealing that person to be just awful, just a terrible person. So I think I think that's one of the things that makes this film really effective is that it brings that. Um, relationship of of family and class to the fore yeah i i found i found that scene to be really interesting because i think uh connor you pointed out the thing for me that was kind of most salient is that like when he's confessing that their entire relationship has been a lie and he's been manipulating her and, and effectively abusing her by by not telling her that there's a small chance she'll be sacrificed to the devil if they ever get married like like the music in the background is like some some like light whimsy rom com like like you're meant to feel that that he's oh he's bearing his soul to her or something like that and and like and in and in reality it's like no he's just continuing his streak as an abusive like like ah i don't i don't know like 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 so you you've got that like tension that, that that's that's playing like the movie doesn't seem to be aware of just how horrible and creepy that guy is. The movie's trying to make him the relatable one that you kind of like, even though later on it kind of becomes, um, I'm blanking on the character's name, but Drunk Brother. Drunk Brother becomes Daniel. Daniel, yeah. yeah. Daniel Daniel becomes the one that's really sympathetic yeah. Yeah. Uh, to Grace's right. character and not her. And is husband. killed by charity. Yes, yes. killed by yeah. charity, ironically. <laughs> but no, right? I was, I, I was going to say, I love, the, I love the subtle puns that are in all the names. But no, I, I <laughs> totally agree. I actually think the film is aware of this tension. And I think, I think it's interesting that it uses filmic techniques to kind of as- get the audience to assume that what's going to happen is that the that uh, Grace and Daniel will be the ones who walk out of there into the sunset forever. But really, in that that little moment is is as you say, you the whole the whole rest of the narrative of the film is Grace realizing that her new husband is an absolute piece of shit, <laughs> and she's and she's right. so much better <laughs> off never having done any of this. But you know, I mean, I want to just yeah, not to not <laughs> at the risk of being. Uh, called a victim blamer even though we're talking about <laughs> fictional characters in a fictional right. universe um i i, I don't want to let her off the hook either um she's a oh, no. very weird character and you see in the beginning especially before the you know hunt starts to take place like all her sort of actions and the way she talks and everything they seem very like controlled and contrived you know so if you look at the way um, and, and I do think this is because of the, how it was planned and, you know, not just because Samara is a bad actor, but, <laughs> but she, she, when you get into like the chase and the hunting scene, it's like, it's very emotive. It has this very sort of realistic quality to it. Um, the way she is acting, but before that, it seems all kind of forced. And I feel like, you know, even when she's sitting there with, a. I forget uh, Alex's mother's name, but played by Andy McDowell, which is just uh, 
great choice there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when she's sitting with her insane wine, I, I thought maybe I could have a, a permanent family, you know? It just looks so staged and fake mm. um, to me in that moment, rather than betraying some sort of, you know... I mean, you can see real sort of pain in that manipulation that she's trying to pull off. But I think that there is something about her, too. And I think that that's confirmed in a weird way by the end of the movie, Um so at the end, um, God, there's so much to talk about with this movie and I'm really jumping ahead. Um, but that's okay. Uh, so at the end, when they fail to, uh, sacrifice her to Satan, um, <laughs> and the, the, the entire family just blows up, right? And blobs of goop, except her. And you kind of wonder then, because at the end, she, she has married into the family. Sure, she says she wants a divorce and she throws the ring at her at Alex before he blows up. But she's spared. And mm-hmm. not only is she spared, right after she's spared, she sees the devil, or it could be um the great grandfather, but I think it is like Mr. Lavelle, and he nods at her, and she's like, ah, fuck. Huh. You know, like it's almost as if uh there's something in that moment, because you wonder why. He he's the one choosing the card that shows up. So he chose this card for her in some senses, probably because he knew she would kill them all. And so she's in cahoots with the devil at the end. And she's spared by him, in fact, as if they've both done each other this reciprocal favor, mm. you know. And then she sits outside and she's like, in-laws, ha ha ha, smoking a cigarette like Winona Ryder at the end of Heathers, you know, while the school burns behind her. And it really seems like there is some culpability here um, that is being teased out. I'm not saying on a conscious level or that she's necessarily a horrible person, but there are, to different and varying degrees in this family and including her, different hustles that are kind of about dealing with a class issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, totally. I I really like uh, uh the kind of point you bring up about Grace's character and and her culpability in this, right? Because part part of this movie or the the experience of watching this movie for me was begging the question of like there 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 is easily another world where Grace drew Parcheesi and they had a really boring game mm-hmm. night and yeah. now she's a multimillionaire heiress. And and like five years from now, uh, someone else is going to be getting married, and they'll draw they'll draw uh, hide and go seek, and she'll happily gun down and murder a stranger to maintain her class interest. <laughs> totally, <laughs> yeah. It was only because she was made the victim that she became sympathetic. I think you know, which is very interesting, and it makes you wonder, like, oh, would he have told her if, in fact. She it, like if in fact she had drawn yeah Parcheesi or whatever <laughs> crazy eights whatever it would have right. been you know <clears throat> also that begs the question why hide and seek why is that the game that actually results in these kinds of tensions why is it that one the only thing I could think of is like well it's the sort of most primitive one maybe other than tag yeah. I guess whereas all the others require this accoutrement but this is a sort of you know, most dangerous game kind of thing. But I, I think I think that's that's the answer. Is like ready or not is kind of another spiritual spiritual sequel or like whatever however we want to frame this like like a soft reboot of the deadliest game concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, I, but you know, you if she wouldn't have pulled that card, I don't. I, you know, I guess he would have told her, or he would have had to tell her at some point. But I do you really see her leaving him after that? I don't at all. 
you know, I see her being like, well, that is fucked up, you know, yeah. and that's it. That's the end of it. You know, well, yeah, like what happens? What, what happens if she would have just won? <laughs> you know, she, 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 and it's morning, you know, and like, like, uh, and, and I think I think like there, there, there are so many questions about the end. Right. Because we get. You know, the whole family blows up and yeah, their mansion burns down, but like the ultra wealthy don't care about it. One, if one of their mansions <coughs> burns down, whatever, you know, they've got backup mansions and they've got their wealth held in other places. And so she, she's still legally in this family. The marriage was still complete, even though she kind of uh, symbolically or spiritually rejects it uh, before, before uh, Mr. LaBelle blows up the family mm. but like you gotta wonder right. like um when all the paperwork <coughs> clears is she gonna inherit the ladamas gaming fortune yeah i think i think what you've both been talking about brings up a really interesting point especially around this idea of like culpability and that ties into not just this film to f this film's critique of not just family but specifically of marriage because it because it's marriage which is the means by which you create that permanent family that she's talking about right and so it requires a certain kind of dissembling on behalf of everybody involved that's what this film seems to be saying right and yeah uh i think the the implications of the ending are pretty clear that like had this card not been picked it would have been it would have been all too easy for like that that system of 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 wealth and marriage and privilege to have kind of just quite happily absorbed her yeah uh, right so is it <laughs> i mean it it can't it can't help but for me but to bring up Meghan markle um <laughs> because like <clears throat> because there's a culpability of people that marry into families like this. And we need to take that seriously. You know, like when people talk about um, Michelle Obama, for instance, as being, you know, like the most amazing person in the world. And it, we used to talk about Hillary Clinton that way, you know. Um, I mean, there, there are differences, of course. But it's like, yeah, but like you married the mob boss. Like, I, I don't, you know, like when I think about the way that turned out in The Sopranos, like you're guarding and covering and putting on a pretty face for people that are doing terrible things in the world. And Meghan Markle, it's like, you know, you have this person that cries once on TV and people are like, oh my God, this person had a normal human emotion. It's like, should we start a GoFundMe for mm. her? Like she has access to, <laughs> she can have therapy every hour of the day. You know, for the rest of her life, if she wanted to, to deal with and process these emotions, because she chose to marry into a family of warlords that owns more land collectively than anybody else on the mm -hmm. planet, and is leaving the family with like an $8 million mansion and, you know, a full security team and still getting money off of his father's, you know, uh, you know, land rights and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a way in which we identify with people who marry into these families as victims. Um, so just to make a broader point, I'm not pulling away from a feeling dimension. I'm sure actually like people who are in these situations have feelings too. And I think that that's something very interesting brought out by this movie as well. In a feeling dimension, we can totally overlap and understand and even empathize with people who are doing horrible things um, or make bad decisions in their lives. But like the tendency of us to empathize with people that marry into 
rich families or dominions yeah. <laughs> um, or whatever it is, you know, is really a betrayal of our own uh, yes, impulses to be, you know, rescued from our poverty so we can transcend it and step on the people beneath us without paying attention to it anymore. Yes. And I think that that's really bad news. And we should be holding people that make the decision to enter into these families accountable as well. And so I think that's part of the reason why I don't feel as much sympathy for her. It's like, whether you did it, whether you knew that they were like crazy or not, um, because they would hunt you through the halls of their mansion. Well, yeah, that sucks for you, but who else is getting trampled on, um, by this family? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that that, this text is really complicated because it's kind of multimodal, right? Because like along, along class lines, Grace is absolutely a villain, right? Grace was so okay with, with, because, you know, we, we can assume that this family is, is a clear metaphor for like the Parker brothers, uh, a gaming foundation or something. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like that, that, that exists because they, they like boil down countless billions of little plastic chits day and night to form, to form little monopoly man pieces and, and just total trash and grind that out and and these products are made by people who are being killed in these factories and in horrible conditions and and grace was fine with all of that stuff she just got a little squeamish when satan showed up and he was like hey guys remember the agreement we made <laughs> totally totally right and and how like fucked up like yeah you're gonna play you're going to play rich people on our board game monopoly you know like after we've like you know uh, put people in sweatshop labor conditions and worse to make this board game for you, and you'll never be one of us. Yeah, but hey, I think yeah. yeah. Here's a thimble. Here's a thimble. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Here's a thimble. <laughs> well, I I think this is this is something that brings up something really interesting, which is the one of the things that I really uh, think is interesting about this film is the idea that it explores the. Uh, necessity of tra- of being a traitor to one's own class, uh, because like in the context of Meghan Markle, how frustrating is it that it's only the it's only the royals that gets to be the class that abolishes itself? You know, <laughs> like how just how, right. how, how right. irritating is it that it's only the rich that get to choose to refuse living in a class society? Uh, so, but there's uh, it's uh, Alex's brother that I think is the best example of this, right? The uh, is Daniel, right? Yeah. Who, who there's that great conversation that he has with uh, with uh, Emily, the sister, the one with the kids, where she's like saying, "Well, what about my kids? Don't my kid kids deserve to live?" And he just goes, "No, I I don't think any of them. I don't think any of us do." And I'm like, that's that's a pretty. It would be really, it would be really easy for a film with like slightly less courage of its convictions to be like, you know what? You're right. All children's lives matter, uh, and and that's that's sort of what I was expecting. But this film goes, uh, you know what? No, no, does it doesn't matter if you're if you're part of it, if you've if you've acquiesced to it. Yep, yeah, you probably you probably deserve it. You probably deserve the 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 very getting turned into the massive blood balloon that's going to happen <laughs> at the end of this film. And I think it would be really interesting to have a sequel to this with uh with with Grace as the antagonist because I think your reading of the ending is completely correct. Mm. Mhm. Yeah, I was going to say like uh what was <laughs> I was going to say, are you going to say that there's going to be a sequel with 
uh, Archie Harrison Mountbatten Windsor uh. or whatever the fucking like or whatever the fucking kid's name is. But um, yeah, names. no, I mean, it, it, yeah, it would be great to see her as the person <laughs> at the end who started her whole new thing. You know, maybe uh, and. And she, you know, she clearly has some agreement with the devil at this point. But I love that you're saying, yes, they're the only ones that get to sort of abolish it. I mean, they never really abolish it, right? You know, like they never would really. But I'm thinking, you know, Wittgenstein, who had a shitload of money and gave it all up and joined the military. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there are real ways of actually deciding to leave, um, to leave your class behind. Although. But I mean, I don't necessarily know that joining the military is a good way of doing it. And in fact, is something that, you know, this movie also creates a sort of thought about, which is, you know, you have Charity, um, Daniel's wife, who has also a difficult background. And she's like, I would rather die than, you know, um, than go back there. Or I would rather kill than go back to being poor. Whatever it is that she says, she'll do whatever it takes. We certainly don't sympathize with her, even though, you know, in some ways she actually is kind of sympathetic. There's a moment where, you know, after the hunt begins, Alex is sitting in a room by himself and she goes in to sympathize with him. You know, I mean, it seems genuine. She says, you know, like, Alex, honey, do you want some company or, you know, whatever she says, um, sort of walking in to talk to him. And then she's like, oh, fuck, he's gone because he's escaped the room to go save his wife. And so I think, you know, I mean, I think that there is an idea that certain people who have a certain, you know, of a certain class, they'll move in and out of their conscience, you know? And um, this movie is maybe saying in a way like, yeah, but what, what are you when your back is against yeah, the wall? Precisely. Right. Like, who are you really? But all, really nobody comes, nobody's clean. Not the kids nope. either, you know, <laughs> who get read paradise lost at night. <laughs> I don't know if you guys noticed that, like better terrain and hell. Yeah. yeah like they're, they're reading Milton to them as they fall asleep. And, you know, she, like even the kids, you know, they're not blameless. Um, and in fact, one of them is truly terrible and is very excited about all of it. Um, and she, she clocks them, which is always nice. And then they blow up at the end, which everybody loves that moment where kids die in horror movies. For some <laughs> I, I, I was, say, I was, I was, when 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 we get to the end and everything's falling apart, I'm like, if these kids don't fucking die, this movie's gonna lose so many. <laughs> for me. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. We I, are we are in a horror movie, <laughs> goddammit. Like, yeah, you, you, child, your little puppers, they are not safe. And uh, I and know this film it. is like unashamed about going. Yeah, your kids are horrible. Your kid. Not only are we gonna kill them, we're gonna make the audience enjoy watching them explode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, because his because Alex's mom, you know, at the end, when she finally sort of loses it and charges Grace, she says, like, you know, you're not going to hurt my family, you know. So, like, you get that age old trope of, you know, I'm doing this for my family, which is why people take horrible jobs, why they join the military, why they do all sorts of things that are destructive and hurtful to other people. Because you can always shift the footing and say, yeah, but this is for my family. This is for the people I care yeah. about. And who couldn't empathize with that? And yet it clearly is not blameless and nor should it be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think it would have been really easy for this film to kind of fall into the into the kind of reductive trope of cartoonishly villainous rich people. 
But as you say, like uh, charity's motivations are completely understandable. But the whole point is, even if your even if your actions are understandable, if you if you get that there is the necessity of a struggle between classes, you put yourself on one side of a fight. You know, and and like I really like the way that you put it, where you said like when your back's against the wall, who are you? You know, which side are your loyalties on? Um, but I also think this film, I think, I think Daniel is, Daniel's maybe my favorite character in the film, uh, simply because he's the one who's willing to admit that what they do, despite all of the privileges it gives them, you know, I'm doing this because I want a better life for my, for my kids. Despite all of that, what they do is morally inexcusable and they probably deserve to die. Well, <laughs> in that case, Helene should be your favorite character. The sort of she's, the goth, she, purple, she's, she's, rain, she, lesbian vamp. She, she, she's my yeah. sec, she's my second favorite. She's my second favorite. Okay, because she she actually is like honest, yeah, right? Yeah, she doesn't. Like, she doesn't she's pretend. Like, she's like no, no. She's fucking <laughs> evil, you know. And I think I mean I think that that's that's a really great thing about this movie, right? Like it gives you all the kinds of um, versions of rich assholes like you get the stupid mitch guy or no you get the stupid um what's mitch's wife's name the sister i forget her name but you get you get her she's an idiot she's bumbling she's you know doing coke every five seconds and she's hilarious (laughs) her lazy her lazy husband mitch the calculated father and then you get the evil pure evil helene then you get the one who crawled up the ladder and then you get you know this hillary clinton elizabeth warren mom yeah you know so like (laughs) Who like just does it for the good of everybody, you know, I'm just doing it to take care of my family. And so you get all these different versions of why people would be horrible people when they're rich, you know, including also the, the house, the groundskeeper, whatever, the butler, whatever the fuck that guy is. Oh, the you maximum know. class um, trader butler. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you get all those people and like um, all the versions of it and they're all sort of unacceptable and all complicated yeah. you know and i think you're right daniel is the one that's the most sympathetic and the only reason why is because he's willing to die you know um and that that's about it but he also seems willing to die out of despair not so much like i'm willing to sacrifice myself for the cause but like oh fuck it who cares anymore well, anyway well you know? i've 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 long held the opinion that you need to take the uh the the money from super wealthy people literally for their own good because it's like it's existentially destroying right i mean i mean weirdly that ties back to everything ash was quoting from camus right like the he, he isn't just he isn't just apathetic it's like being being a rich person not only means being like almost irredeemably morally compromised it just means being sort of existentially uh empty uh in a way that's really hard to quantify which is why all of them all of them are really interesting kind of versions of 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 a of a class monster yeah yeah i think that's um that's one of the interesting things uh about this text for me is you really see that like the the entire family is is just at this point like spiritually and emotionally destroyed and and they've reached this point because of what their wealth forces them to do, right? There's nothing left to these people. They're all, like, hollowed out, like, goblins who are just, like, simultaneously completely exhausted by the horrors they have to continue to commit, but also kind of numb to the screaming. 
except for except for Helen, who is so into it. Who is oh so, yeah, yeah. Who is ex- ex- so, except for the single ass character in the movie, who's just like, who is, fuck yeah, let's kill for Satan. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> who is and and you know has that kind of weird um, aristocratic thing about uh, blood purity, which. You know, she's she's bas- mm-hmm. she's basically like uh, a fascist for Satan. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very. She's a very funny type, right? Like you can't help but think of Camille Paglia. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I even I even kind of like I like Camille Paglia at, at turns, you know, at least. But you can't help but think like here is this fucking like. Her hair, her white hair is trembling as she says everything with a smile and she's like totally miserable unless she's in like the topic that she cares about the most and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no. Um, so so we've got we've got uh, Camille Paglia, we've got Hillary Clinton, uh, we've got like... <laughs> Meghan Markle. We've got Meghan Markle. <laughs> yeah, we got... We got to make some of these guys into types too. I'm being like, like oh, totally yeah. sexist just by typing the women. Um yeah but you know like i i also want to say like um sorry i'm like talking a lot on this episode but i just i've seen this movie a lot of times now too because i watch it with everybody i've watched it with so many people because it somehow skipped past a lot of people's notice when it came out did you i don't know if you guys saw that too where like not a lot of people were talking about it or knew it when it was out in theaters so i had to like when it finally came out, watch it with a lot of people. So I've seen it many times now. Did you guys? Yeah, it did get a little bit passed over. I, I mean, I heard it was getting some buzz, but like mostly I, I heard about it through like people through Twitter or like some people on the Discord uh, were talking about it. And that's what made me really like interested in seeing it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I felt like, I don't know. It's like, what are you afraid of? Why won't you watch this movie? <laughs> but um, but I was also thinking a lot about, um, have you guys read any of, uh, well, I'll just, it's like David Graeber's um, idea of games versus play and how um, games are basically systems of bureaucracy that people like to uh, engage with or they long to engage with because you know, it's like the gamification thing. It gives you a sense of completion. People are all kind of equal in the face of the rules, Mm. all that sort of stuff. But like play is really threatening because as a separate thing from games, like you can enter into games and think that you're playing, but actually you're just being sort of worked through a system of pre-planned or really definite um, outcomes, but play is completely open. And so for me, you know, I see play as something that's always threatening, whether it's sex or conversation or um, it could be uh, creativity, you know, you know, making. And so these, these kinds of acts are always threatening and they might not, they might be utilized by people in power as well, but it's a, it's a, it's a gesture that can lend meaning and value to our lives, you know? And so um, there's always a clash between those two things. And so this movie is really a movie about, it's about games, right? Yeah. Um, And nothing exists outside the game is the other thing. It's like, once you step outside the rules of the game, like you're not in the game anymore. And so that's kind of what has happened here, you know, stepping outside the rules of the game. And it brings out, it brings out this tension right at the end where you actually think that everybody has stepped outside of the game. And it's a really great moment where they fail to sacrifice her when the sun rises and they're all just like, Oh no. And then there's a moment they're like, Oh, nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like nothing's going to happen. 
it's the best moment. And I, and I, I do actually ultimately as fun as the blowing up stuff, what I really wish that that would have been how it ended. Yeah. Um, I wish they would have gone with like, no, actually the bureaucracy has been unveiled by someone who decided to step outside the game. Um, and I think that the, you know, that would be the sort of, that would really have been like the killer of this movie is to leave it there. I don't know how they would have handled it, but you know, you see like a sort of opposite of it done pitch perfectly in Rosemary's baby where you have the person, you know, Mary, Mia Farrow's character who's totally like obsessed with what's going on all around her, the neighbors, all that kind of stuff. Are they planning to, you know, like take her baby? Are they not? What's going on? And she becomes increasingly obsessive. And then at the end it's like, well, of course. Yeah. Yeah, they're all Satan worshippers and they, you know, like had you raped by the devil so you could have the devil's baby and um, be the mother of Antichrist. Yeah. And here's some good old fashioned Lipton tea. You'll drink it, you know. <laughs> and I think it's like, you know, the the normality of total evil, like the most evil thing that could ever happen versus this, which would have been great, which is like all this evil is happening and you realize, oh, for nothing, like for, for no hmm. point. You know, it would have been nice to see that in a movie. What I really like is that throughout a lot of the film, the implication is like none of the family, a lot of the younger generation of the family don't believe it anyway. They like they're like, oh, there's 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 wacky. Oh, Anne Helen's been at the brandy again. She's talking about murdering people for Satan. But if we don't do it, it's it's all it's all bullshit. None of this is real anyway, uh, because they're completely kind of. Because the rich lead a qualitatively and quantitatively different kind of life to the rest of us, where they go, oh yeah, it's a Saturday night, I'm just going to run around my mansion with some crossbows and might accidentally shoot some servants in the throat. <laughs> but, to, but, but, but to them, that's completely normal. So, so quite a lot of the time, you can kind of sort, sort of see like, um, it's Fitch, especially, who's like rolling his eyes in the background where they start talking about killing people for Satan. Uh, and I love the, I love that, that. Uh, moment at the end where they go <laughs> oh you see we were right all along it doesn't really oh shit it was all actually real <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah i mean i i love the ending you know it's great i just think it would have been even more potent and like for the writers to have had that responsibility <laughs> i don't it's like that's an intense responsibility as a creative person to be like yeah it was all bullshit and like um, we have to somehow write our way to the end of this now, you know? Yeah. Um, which is why it's such a funny moment where Helene picks up the axe <laughs> after nothing's happened. And she goes, the girl still dies. You know, <laughs> it comes at her. It's like, that's an incredible moment where it's like, you're fucking committed, yeah, yeah. you know? And then you're like, oh, wait, no, actually, she was just right. You know, she wasn't, she she, she was committed because she was right, not because yeah. she was just committed to she, a cause. She was, yeah. she was a true believer. Um and and that's that's another thing about about kind of that this film captures really well about this the psychology of this of the kind of upper classes, which is that it's it's a disgustingly cynical kind of subjectivity when when none of them really have any kind of like true belief about what it is that they're doing. You know, they 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 think it's all just like a game or like the sister who is constantly messing up and is hilarious. Is always like, oh, it's not fair. I never get to kill anyone. <laughs> it's like the world's worst version of like family game night. <laughs> so, so none of them, none of them, like none of them, truly buy into this. They, they, they're just doing it because they go, well, we've always done this. 
And that's one of the reasons why, I don't know, I think this is maybe something that's, that's true, especially in a country with an aristocracy, that they exist simply because things have always been done this way. So it becomes sort of almost impossible to picture another way of doing things. So people will just go along with stuff because that's what you're expected to do. And you won't ever kind of have people exerting their own kind of agency, except in very rare cases, such as... Uh, been such has been consuming the british tabloid press for the past six weeks uh megxit <laughs> as it's been called which is just God. the worst phrase i've ever heard in my life um so those yeah. rich people always <laughs> flying off somewhere <laughs> but yeah i really i really like i really like the fact that none of these none of this kind of younger generation of of rich assholes believe in all of this tradition stuff anyway it's just something you're expected mm. to do for the family. You know, it keeps mom and dad happy. It keeps Aunt Helen happy. And then right at, at, right at the end, they realized that it was all real. And that was everything that they kind of benefited from came from it. So I think that I think mm. that what you're talking about points to something for me that was really interesting, kind of metatextual to the film. And that's that like... I, I have had conversations with self-identified leftists from the UK who defended the existence of the monarchy... Uh, you know, what? like like yeah. monarchistic brainworms. Oh, so what? no, what? so much. What? Yeah, no, so so monarchistic brainworms are are massively successful in infecting the population, and I think it's totally. it's it's less of a passive like oh things have just always been done this way, so we keep doing things this way, and it's more of like there is a very active and committed propaganda machine that is designed to perpetuate the existence of the monarchy, and one of the things I was thinking about while I was watching Ready or Not. <clears throat> Because I, I was thinking about, like, I was thinking about kind of uh, the same things we've been talking about. Like, I was thinking about, like, the weird British royal family and all of their drama and how, like, this family operates less like like an, a rich American family and they're operating more like an aristocratic old money kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but I was right. thinking that, like, if it ever got out that there was a demonic pact that kept them in power, there would be... Uh, uh, national magazines there would be the, the BBC would be mm. like of course of course it's normal that Prince Henry has to sign the deal with Satan like this is how things are done well, and there that, would be that, there would that be people literally, the that literally it. happened that literally happened <laughs> Prince Andrew gave an interview where he said that he was friends with Jeffrey Epstein after he came yes. out of prison because he was yes. too honourable and you've had you've had uh, you've had uh, you've had like uh, Harry and Meghan, you know, get talked about in certain kind of corners of right-wing discourse as being like traitors and being betraying their duty. And there was a story in in like the Mail or something that talked about how Prince Andrew has been a real rock to the Queen in this turbulent yep. time. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm losing my mind. <laughs> yes, and then like that's. Can we just agree that they're all fucking monsters? Yes. Like, why is it so hard for us? Like, we've always got to find the one we like, you know. None of and them I are think like that that's. No, they all suck. They all suck. When Meghan Markle wrote, "You're sweet on a banana peel," like to like give to sex worker, like th that thing was just what? like absolutely awful. Did you guys see no, that? No. That was the moment where, like, I didn't know anything about the royal family. Like, I paid as little attention to them as possible, except in some sort of like um, peripheral. I'm interested in the occult, so you have to pay attention to monarchies, kind yeah. of way. Yeah. But like, okay, yeah, fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> but like, there was this sex worker, like. 
um, people were delivering food to like sex workers and, and so forth, some organization, which was very nice. But then the, the charming couple went to visit, you know, the, this charity and there was like a box of bananas and Megan Markle was like, oh, I have an idea. And she pulled out a ballpoint pen and she picked up every banana and wrote, you are loved. You are cared what? for on the bananas. And I was just like, you fucking asshole. What the fuck? <laughs> like, and the ultimate act of projection too, because clearly if you marry into a monarchy, you are a sex worker. Like there's just no way of denying that like there is a reciprocal thing going mm-hmm. on there when you marry into that much fucking money. And to me, and and also like, that played itself out in the way the tabloids like talked about her later, like, oh, she was on Pornhub. And people were like, how dare you need to apologize to her? I was like, you need to apologize to porn stars because we are not like the monarchy. Like, apologize to us for being compared to her, not vice versa. Right? Like, <laughs> and so I think like the way that these, yeah, anyway, that's, <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to go off. The only reason why I'm even bothering to single her out at all is because as you said, Ashley, like the like for some reason there's been this campaign of royal sympathy and you know sympathy with the monarchy and it doesn't and it comes in many different forms and the way that it's happening right now is that people are sympathizing with the part of the monarchy that pretends to be leaving itself yeah you know when it's not leaving in any way shape or form <laughs> like, right there's still a massive a amount of vacation. <laughs> they're, they're taking a little napski over in Canada. This isn't like a great schism of the British royal system. I am absolutely having my brain melted by the fact that you have met like pro left leftist pro monarchists, which I, I yes. that, that that sounds just utterly bizarre to me. And yeah, and the, I, the the ones that I've talked to have couched it in uh, the context of history tradition uh the the fucking absolutely tired argument of uh tourism dollars that doesn't really bear out uh, i've um, i've said this before i've said yeah. this before i will say this again if you if you like if you are drawn to the history to the tradition to the pageantry just watch professional wrestling just like right? stop <laughs> just just get really into wwe uh, Seriously, and, and, and stop wasting your time with the monarchy. If you like, if you like pageantry, if you like performance, get into drag, man. <laughs> like, if you want pageantry, there you go. And there, there was enough of it in the past. Like, watch out, Nabby, and have a great time. That right? doesn't mean you have to support it in real fucking life anymore. G- you know, go fucking like, larping pl- or something. Like, like go be part of the pageantry. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, also totally. and also like Ash is completely correct that. You know, if news as usual, got, yes. If news gone out, if news gone out that oh, there is there there is this weird occult ritual in this elite family's history, uh, everyone would just go, oh, well, that's interesting. And though the last surviving members of the board game dynasty would be given like an interview, and then we would all just forget about it because oh yeah, because we all kind of I think I think everyone kind of subconsciously knows on some level that that expresses a sort of fundamental truth about class relations. This is, this is very similar to the time where that story about David Cameron broke about, uh, about, about him at, uni- I was thinking that about too. him at university uh, and the initiation, right? Which involved the pig's head and his penis. And it was strenuous, that strenuous. That's it was strenuously denied. Um, but everybody, you talk to anybody, they'll go, yeah, he denies it. But, but it definitely happened, though, didn't it? It, de- it and even if it did, and even if it didn't happen, that's definitely the kind of thing they do, though, isn't it? So. 
just norm just normalize that's what they would do like i mean it's laid out in them by john ronson and then men who stare at goats mm-hmm. right like like he snuck into <laughs> with alex jones at the time right like which is hilarious to see people like setting a giant owl effigy on fire and i love john so much and we're friends but like his conclusion was like these people are goofy, you know, <laughs> like, which is like it's true they are, and they're probably idiots. But like that means something, you yeah, know. It a means different some- use. <laughs> something that these people are, you know, trying to train soldiers to walk through walls and kill goats by looking at them. And so for me, there's also this other component of a kind of materialistic, scientistic worldview which reduces those things to absurdity, so we don't no longer take them seriously, so they become these sort of strategies and tactics of people and institutions in power as well. Like, I think that that's something that's important. And I do, to bring it back to David Graeber again, you know, you wrote this book on Kings with Marshall Sollins, where they discussed that actually, like, kingship is a fundamental feature of all cultures. But what they say is like, look, but this is it, for a lot of cultures, this kind of stuff exists in a sort of spiritual dimension where you have these beings that are incorporated into the belief systems and the actions and the and the feelings um, of the people that of whatever you know nation or whatever you want to say <clears throat> to demarcate different communities of people. You know, they're spiritual beings, and those beings have a kind of kingship, and that's where that kingship idea is placed. Whereas, you know, there are these different forms of kings and monarchies in that case that, you know, are enacted by people and they're always a miserable almost always a miserable failure. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, we they're always sort of relate to God in one way or another, and that's how they've gotten their power anyway. So it's just sort of like, do you want to embody this impulse that we have, or maybe this even necessary feature of culture that does not necessarily mean that we embody it in a set of people through a family yes. that own a ton of land and have guards and military and make all these decisions. You know, it's like, be pro-monarchy if you want it to be like space gods, you know, <laughs> yeah. like that, that's fine. If, that's where if, it if works. You, if you believe that uh, Prince Charles is, you know, uh, the, the spirit of the world reborn, uh, and, and is like Atlas holding up uh, all four corners of the planet, then 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 fine. But otherwise, you're just selling yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is well. <laughs> I was just gonna say this is exactly what I was getting at with my like uh, whimsical uh, uh, description of today's film. Is that like you know we we uh, it in effect cede so much uh, uh, cultural territory to these right leaning forces when we when we be like oh like uh, magic the occult uh, spiritual beliefs pageantry all of this stuff is just the frills and excess of capital we can ignore it it's bad like when we when wow. we do that we cede this territory and then we get like like the, the these people are are just wandering around doing the most ludicrous stuff in the world and they're like oh no it's it's by the divine right of god that i get this magic scepter and can rename this island whenever the hell i feel like i like, love i love the idea that um john ronson might have visited the ladomus uh, mansion before the <laughs> before the film starts and it's like you know they've got a great collection of historic weapons and they st- <laughs> <laughs> they're really, they're a really close knit family. They love, they love playing, they love playing games together. And I think, I think that's nice. You know, venerable old traditional family. <laughs> venerable. Uh, um, but no. Well, that I mean, that is like you guys are both making a really. I think it's an important point, which is like 
look at, you know, whether or not you believe in, I mean, this is a personal talking point for me, but it's like whether or not you believe in the occult and magic and the supernatural and all that kind of stuff, like, it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not, like, you better take it seriously because the people and institutions in power surely do. So, like, it really behooves you to learn about it and understand what the fuck is going on there. But, like, actually a strategy and tactic of power is... uh, I hate that I keep using this word power, but like is um, – sorry, just to diss on anybody that loves Foucault who's listening to the show or <laughs> hosting it. it. Um, but the <laughs> but, but the, the you know, this idea that like that's a strategy and a tactic to make us think that it's nothing. So we never get to investigate the kinds of like pathways of understanding they have about their own rights and their own responsibilities and their own reasons for why they're doing things. And we can never, you know, be sort of let in because we're like, wow, that's so crazy. And it's like, well, to actually understand this tightly knit Mm. sort of nexus of forces and currents here, it would actually make more sense for you to take that seriously, pay attention to it rather than simply ridiculing. Yeah. Yeah, I I share those thoughts exactly. And I I just want to add that, like, even if you are an absolutely rigid, strict materialist, and and you see the world as nothing more than sets of economic exchanges that can be changed to benefit the working class and and chemical reactions in the brain you at least need to respect that like the upper classes and the aristocracy are using these metaphors these symbologies these systems to maintain and operate their control and if we dismiss that and ignore it we're just leaving that as territory they can do whatever the hell they want with to 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 add to add a kind of another layer to this um, that is lended lent to it by both the film and Marx. You know, Marx Marx talks about capital in um, abstract Gothic terms, right? Talks about it in very distinctly immaterial terms. These are immaterial forces that have material effects, and this 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 idea that they are. Uh, you know, sacrificing people every every fifteen years or whenever they draw the card, it's like is not distinct from the fact that they are incredibly wealthy and incredibly prosperous and incredibly, uh, you know, and 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 people who marry into it are are willing to do whatever it takes to defend that. And so you have violence, which is which is uh, embodied firstly on working class people in this case the servants, and you have the kind of immaterial forces of capital that have guaranteed their generational wealth. They talk about the fact this deal with the devil, even if you want to read it just as a metaphor and not as a literal deal with the literal devil, has has secured them generational wealth, which is uh, capital accumulation. That's what that means. So even if I think, I don't necessarily believe that anybody is a kind of solely materialist. Um, oh yeah, that and, was a little bit of hyperbole. <laughs> but but you know, even if you want to read this metaphorically, this maps so well onto stuff that Marx wrote about in Volume One of Capital. Yeah, I think I think yes, and also in his weird satanic poetry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but <laughs> where he clearly thought something was going on that was not, <laughs> not just purely material. But but I think like you know, yeah, it's a really good point, which is that. You know, there's been a lot of popularization of this analysis that, um, and I, I, I don't know if it's a misreading or an accurate reading of like Sylvia Federici or people who sort of write in this vein that like, you know, people who practice magic or witchcraft or whatever were sort of outside the productive economy and were therefore threatening. Um, mm-hmm. That's 
true, but that like you can't just extrapolate that that's where that lives. Like that that's the only place where witchcraft and magic and occult systems yeah. live. Like you need to say like no, actually, like why the fuck is Donald Trump and you know these other world leaders putting their hands on a glowing orb? Yep. And like why the fuck does Kamala Harris have a secret Freemason police force working underneath her? And why does and these things all sound crazy, right? Like as I say why them, is the all you know, and why on our money? Like, come on, <laughs> yes. And why? Why are the why are the Reagans consulting a psychic astrologer? Yep. It's it's like those things are all just look them up. They're very easy to find in mainstream newspapers. That you know, it's a, there's nothing conspiratorial about any of those yeah. things. So I'm not offering the more difficult ones to maybe pull apart. But it's like that. You know, I think what you're pointing to is like, yes, you know, we need to begin to understand these structures as um, working out of those impulses as well. And not just that, you know, the witch or the people that believe in magic or the occult are like the poor, stupid people who don't know any better and are just on the outliers of, you know, it's like that's a com- or, or or people who not that self federation is saying that poor people are stupid, but or or just that people that are not participating in the capitalist uh, economy or the rise of capitalism, mm-hmm. but that actually these structures are you know in, woven into all of it. You know, yeah, capitalism has an occult economy. Like, I think I think like there's 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 such a long history. There's such a long history of of uh, Gothic Marxism that talks about this. That talks about the ways in which um, the immaterial and the material are concretized and embodied in capitalist processes. And yet, you know, this idea that you can somehow kind of just strip all of that out. It's a it's a holdover from the from this insistence on seeing any kind of leftist political economics as strictly a science. Um, but the idea that you can strip all of that out is just complete nonsense. You know, there is this. Uh, I think the glowing orb is 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 just the best example uh, and the most high profile, uh, maybe recently. But like you know, the president who lives in this massive gold tower with his name emblazoned on it. It's a, and and yet we're supposed to think about this in solely in terms of the science of dialectical materialism that has no room for anything that might be non-material within it is 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 not only like reductive it's just not 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 kind of marxist enough to actually understand what capitalism is and how it operates well right and so i mean you guys probably remember what was it like two two months ago or something like that where after the uh, elections in the UK, I made like a tweet uh, that was like, time to start listening to occultists, you know, yeah. like when <laughs> labor lost. And I got like dogpiled for like, day. I mean, this, this kind of stuff doesn't bother me anymore. It's happened enough times that I'm, it just runs off my back at this point. But like thousands of people were like, this fucking idiot, like this dude is so stupid. Like magic isn't real. Magic is just fascism and disguise oh and all God, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's like, and these were leftists, yep. you know, supposedly, Alleged. you know, supposedly Alleged leftists. leftists. Yes. And, and I think, you know, it's like, aside from the fact that that is so woven into colonialist beliefs that believe that anybody has a spirituality or believes in sort of uh, magical, supernatural, or, you know, metapersonal, you know, beings or any of that kind of stuff is stupid. That's just colonialism. But aside from that, it's like, you know, I, I just think that it would really 
make a big difference if those people would just take two seconds, you know, and people in general take two seconds, watch ready or not, you know, yep. <laughs> take it, take an hour and a half and take it seriously, yeah. you know, um, not be the duped kid in the family, you know, not be Mitch who's like sitting on the toilet, <laughs> looking up our compacts with the devil real on Google, which is an amazing instead, moment. <laughs> It's an amazing moment. And that like really, to me, is the perfect image of the people that were dunking on me on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> like on their toilets, on the phone, <laughs> you know, going through, through this kind of stuff. I'm sure a lot of those people are just like super smart, very misguided, and maybe even threatened by this possibility that they might agree with me if they looked into it, you know. And some of them are just assholes, obviously, like people on the internet tend to be. But, um, but I think that that is – like something that I love about this movie is that, you know, it's so, aside from it just being so fun, so well paced and really exciting, it's just, you know, it asks us like, hmm, you know, what are, what is the bond between these currents? And I think that that's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, I think taking, taking, uh, taking horror especially horror like this seriously as not just a kind of uh i mean as as just disposable entertainment is is a mistake take it seriously as fiction fine whatever or you even read it as as metaphor but that metaphor has within it a certain degree of truth content that you have to be able to kind of get your head around because uh, yeah otherwise you end up just uh Breathing a sigh of relief when you think it's all not real before you get turned into a big old uh, balloon full of blood and painted all over the walls of your family's mansion, which is now being burned to the ground. <laughs> You've got, like, Jeffrey Epstein's sex plane was real. Yeah. Like, that should be enough. <laughs> like, how much more do we fucking need, guys? Like people, like the president puts their hand on the Bible, like when they swear in, like that's weird. Yep. That's just fucking weird. Like all of it's just weird. But anyway, I love, I love that, you know, this movie is just one of those great movies where it doesn't demand that you, or it doesn't even allow you in some ways. It's so fun. It doesn't even allow you to just sort of look at it and pull it apart politically and say, well, this means this and this means this, but rather it's just a great film that inspires a conversation that goes in a lot of different directions. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, that's the best kind of movie for me, I think is like, um, well, the best kind is the one that overwhelms all my thoughts and I can't even really have a conversation about it because I'm, you know, gobsmacked by it. But that's very rare. But the kind of con the kind of movie that inspires a conversation, we could have easily had talked about other movies that this is like. Instead, we could have talked about Knives Out and You're Next and all these other, you know, sort of movies in this tradition and not talked about any of these political things. And still it would have been a great conversation because there's just so many layers to this film. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with that. This movie is just really, really, really good when it comes to the discourse. Hashtag the discourse. Um, I definitely think that one of the things that I really enjoyed is that uh, LaBelle, you know, the, the devil stand-in, right? Like, LaBelle is French for lease. You know, so it's like the most on-the-nose, soul-selling <laughs> possible. Oh, yeah. But it completely. really, like, like I think, I think John, you're, you're totally right. It completely nails the, like, uh, you know, eeriness of capitalism, right? 
that, that, that it's this immaterial and abstracted concept exerting itself into the world in these physical manifestations, whether that's causing people to explode uh, like giant balloons full of blood or, you know, making a board gaming empire last through generations. Yeah. Or uh, getting getting um, working class uh, servants shot in the neck by a crossbow. Um, that, that, that is also that is also an important function of, of, of this kind of immaterial force. And I think <laughs> or turning or turning turning your aunt from a loving, caring person into community. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's oh, so committed. Yeah. She's such a she's she is a true believer. So um, she is she's my favorite character uh, besides besides like the the kind of like metaphor metaphoric um, devil that's throughout the movie is my actual favorite character. But my favorite character that gets any real screen time is her. And that's because she reminds me of um, so Utah Phillips, one of like the the, the great singers of the IWW um, would mm-hmm. would always uh, preface one of his songs with like a little anecdote that like back in the day you had the luxury of hating your boss because your boss openly hated you. And now, now every boss is like, oh, my door's always open. We're a family here. You know, you can t- talk to me about anything. When in reality, they'd rather see you die than actually do any of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, she, she just, she is just like the best possible example of like, no, you really should hate the people above you. They're really worth it. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Hate, hate is a healthy, perfectly normal human emotion if aimed at people who have given their entire lives to earning it. Uh, it's and, and like I, I I wanted to pick up on one last thing that you were talking about um, LaBelle's name. This idea that um, we've sort of returned to a very uh, historical model of capitalism, which is rancier capitalism. Right? We don't own anything anymore. You can't you can't uh, you can't purchase anything anymore. What you can do is you rent it for a certain amount of time. But you don't actually own the, the the thing that you've handed over your money for. What you have is the kind of access to it. Um, so I think that's. I think it's. I think it's given that given that we're talking about gaming here. Is it not? Is it not? Is it not quite telling that uh, gaming the arena where live service and and uh, not really <laughs> rent it, not really owning games anymore, but renting them and always being kind of a, a multiple purchases, always being kind of uh, generating multiple revenue stream, streams. It's, I think that's that's an important aspect of this as well. It's just something that uh, what you were talking about made me think of. I'm sure someone's written this article, but we have truly entered the age of loot box capitalism. Uh, we've not even talked about how much we hate Stevens the butler. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, th- I thought it pretty much uh, summed it up with uh, like maximum class trader, the character. Uh, yeah yeah just just all, there's there's <laughs> there's a deeply it. there's a deeply cathartic death right <laughs> I, I, th- I think he does represent a really good example though of like just how um other people in the working class can over time become ready and willing to literally kill the people in their same economic condition for just like a modicum of proximity to wealth yeah absolutely like he doesn't he doesn't have any of that wealth he just gets to live in it and that's enough for him yeah, he's he's the only one really that's completely unsympathetic, right? So, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I think sort of going back to the thing I was saying about Meghan Markle earlier, like where you can feel sympathy for her on an emotional level. Yeah. And I think, you know, we do have a challenge um, 
we really do have a challenge of being able to sort of understand and sympathize with people um, in their plights, even though we want to destroy the structures that they're supporting and enabling and enacting and taking out on us. And I think that like we could all probably do, I could do better probably, you know, to like think about that aspect of, you know, the human experience as well. Um, Since I've, spent a lifetime building up, you know, a hatred for these other kinds of structures, which I also participate in, Um, you know, but I've done my due diligence on that side. So I could maybe build up the empathy a little bit more, but I think like the Butler is meant to be somebody who you don't ever have to have sympathy for. And there always has to be that figure, you know, I, I don't, I would hesitate to call it a scapegoat, but like where you just, can see somebody that's just totally absorbed by all the aspects of, you know, both, uh, yeah, but like all the bad aspects of all classes mixed into one person, you know? (laughs) So like, I think that that's, or or, or the results of the results of class and status and all that kind of stuff mixed into one person. So I, I think that he is really a great character and this movie, yeah, really does sort of rely on him a bit. And, they don't feel sympathy for him, right? Like they're all watching on the phone while he's driving her and while this car flips <laughs> and they're kicking him. They're like, oh, oh, like, you know, they're like shouting like they're watching again, a game, you know, they're spectators to a sport. Yeah. And right. they're all he's, trying he's to- so, sorry, oh, yeah, I was just going to uh, yeah, say, and he's so happy that he's caught her, you know, and I'm sure mm-hmm. somewhere in his mind, he's like, oh, this is going to get me something this is going to get me closer to them this is going to get me more like approximations of power you know and like i I think like you're absolutely right connor that like megan markle's a good example of this right because she she is absolutely okay with the fact that the british royal family is like the the single darkest nexus of genocide and imperialism and just just the ills that we face today like like the 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 tainted blood spills outward from there and she was cool with all of that. Like, all of that's just fine. But, like, you know, like, I, still, though, like, it's hard to not sympathize with her as as just on a raw human level because she's still a person. She still has feelings. She, you know, it's still horrible that people have said racist things about her. That still doesn't change. And I think that that is kind of one of the big hurdles that we as kind of like broadly speaking, the quote unquote left have to like grapple with you know we have we have to grapple with like the inherent humanity of our enemies and we have to grapple with the fact that like any any reasonable approach to restorative justice is also going to have to head on encounter the fact that like you know like some some of these people are fully participating and absolutely willing to engage in some of the darkest and most horrific things humanity has ever attempted to do and they're also people yeah 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 absolutely (laughs) Um, it's and and this film re- resists kind of reducing them down to those caricaturish monsters, um, because their motivation, the thing that makes them so kind of repellent is that their motivation is really quite understandable. Yeah, and so which which raises the question, you know, which is which is that if you were in that situation, <laughs> how would you respond? You know, when your back is against the wall, uh, you know, what side would you decide that you would be on? And the the lesson is pick carefully because the the rich upper classes will do literally anything uh, if it thinks they'll it will guarantee them you know five extra seconds of existence before they explode. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I think 
the 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 problem with that question, which I guess I asked before as well, is just like by the time you get to where it's at in this movie, it's too late for anybody. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like like by the time you're in this situation, like your back has already been up against the wall. That's already happened. Yeah. And that's why all these people are irredeemable. Like it's everything that happened before this started, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah I definitely I, I think that there's a there's a more interesting I, I guess like more left version of this movie where you're like I, I like 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 some, some kind of successfully assembled left uh, or organization is appropriating their hideously accumulated wealth turning their mansion into like multifamily housing or a hospital or something and then like at, at the same time there's like a dedicated cabal of like left mages who are working to undo the curse and like save these people right. so that they can go like I don't know spend the rest of their lives like cleaning plastic out of the ocean or something that could redeem at least a <laughs> fraction of the horror they've wrought upon the world. Uh, I think that's a, I think that's an excellent idea for what should happen to the royal family. <laughs> I don't imagine that, the queen with a little like fish scoop like scooping I mean, plastic out of like the channel. <laughs> I mean, come on, like Prince Charles is like very keen to be seen like shaking hands with Greta Thunberg. Uh, let's actually let's actually get him to commit no like let's get him to actually put the work in all i have to say is how dare you (laughs) no it's one of those leftist pro monarchists (laughs) no it's great it's great like it's great to think they could have you know if he really fucking if alex really cared he could have tried to spend his whole life finding a way to break the curse yeah, on his family exactly. no one even thinks about that for a fucking second like it's not even like brought up that like maybe you would want to go to a priest or what you know whatever hackneyed version you mm-hmm. could pick you know before you had to dig into like the real stuff and figure out how to break a compact with the devil you know um so yeah, that also shows something. And I think also like at the end, you know, by the time we get to the end and she's just sitting there smoking and saying in-laws, you know, she's been completely and, and she she's laughing when they blow up in front of her at the end, you know. So like you can't <laughs> you, you like you can't get through it basically. You just can't get through it. There's no way because she's done. I mean, what like you said, the sequel is her doing the horrible things. Yeah. You know, no question. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a really good, uh, point to, to, I feel, I feel like, uh, we're reaching a good point to wrap things up with that. And I think that like, like, I just want to, to go out and say that like, it's interesting how they depict like, these kind of Faustian bargains right in this film and it's interesting like I think this really speaks to kind of like what we've all been saying in terms of like the immaterial nature and the eeriness of capital and like how how the ruling classes and things like monarchies and aristocracies use occult systems Mm. is like this is this is packs with demonic forces this is the occult uh designed to reify capital you know, like in this, you make a contractual agreement with with some manifestation of Satan and you are in return given material goods and an upkeep tax that you have to pay. Uh, but, you know, like there are certainly left interpretations or certainly other visions. And I think like that's that's kind of like one of the horrors of this movie for me is that like at the end of the movie, like 
the entire system is still in place. It's just one one small part of one family has all popped all of a sudden. Yeah, because they say that Mr. Laville went around on a ship selling these puzzles to other people mm-hmm. like, you know, they did in Hellraiser as right. well. I wonder what you think about, like, should she have killed herself? Would that have been the only uh, way to go? Because then she was dead and they all died too? Like, we... We're like I think she, I think they would have all died too if she killed herself, right? Well, uh, because they had to pro- perform the ritual. So I'm happy you bring up Hellraiser. Uh, the first, the first Hellraiser movie, <laughs> and also the third are some of my favorite films. Um, not the second one. The second one's the best I, one. I really like the second one too. I really like the second one. I'm just one of the weirdos <laughs> that's three above two. Okay. But like, like, like I, I want to let me rephrase that. None of the Hellraiser movies are like particularly or especially bad. At the very worst, they're all fun explorations of like BDSM kink infused terror. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's the worst you get when you watch a Hellraiser movie is you're gonna get some really cool kinky monsters, and that is a fine floor to stand on for me. <laughs> but like in in kind of like the Hellraiser canon, the 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 uh Cenobites have like a very interesting moral code in that like Whoever whoever wills the box to be solved is the one that summons them, right? It's not it's uh to to quote Pinhead, it's not uh hands but hearts that bind us. Right? So so when you solve a lament configuration, if it wasn't your will or intention that solved it, they're not gonna come for you. And I think like, you know, that that's that's like the classic interpretation or one of the classic interpretations of the deal with the devil, you know. That it's a very uh honor it might be a dark agreement with with a with a power that's uncomfortable to be near and and something unholy, but it is nevertheless an agreement with rules and boundaries. Right. And I think that that kind of kind of leads us to to Grace's character here in the end, right? Like her name her name is Grace. You know, and the names in this movie are all kind of like like Helen. Helen is the most in to to worshiping Satan and being down with the pact with the devil, and her name starts with Hell. So you've got like like the metaphors in these names, man. But like, I, I kind of feel that like you know, Grace gets a little Grace, not not necessarily Grace in like the divine sense, like the presence of God. But you know, she, like like Satan is like, okay, like I'm giving you a little Grace. You get out of this, right? You know, you you just got unlucky. Everybody else here was part of it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I really like that uh, reading, and I do think the names are particularly important. Um, so, really, I think what you bring up kind of points to two things, which is one that uh, the idea that Mister LaBelle has been traveling around suggests that this is not an isolated incident right this is this is not a case of like one family got into some weird traditions it's like nope this is what this is what it's like for all of them this is like uh, did you see the news about uh who went to jeff bezos's party last night oh yeah <laughs> no. uh, jared kushner and ivanka trump kellyanne conway bill gates uh, uh jamie uh dimian from goldman sachs jay carney uh, David McCormick, Dinah Powell, Jonathan Cut, like all of these kind of elites were were turning up into this one place, and Amazon is so desperate to present itself as this liberal, socially progressive force for good in the universe. And I'm like, yeah, uh, it isn't just one family, is it? It's it's all of them. Mister LaBelle has been to all of your house parties. <laughs> That's exactly what's happened. And I think I think it would be nice to to, to think that the, the name Grace is not just a kind of throwaway choice but there is the possibility of 
um you know because what what happens is is uh there is there is a kind of occult economy but there's also you know uh, a violence directed against the rich which are at play in this and i think both are important uh and your end result is is the survivor this grace is what survives right so hopefully maybe that's a more optimistic way of reading this Hmm. Is it like there's some sort of like unrepression at the end when they all blow up, right? Like, I don't know. I think I think I'm trying to force it a little bit, but I was thinking about how we said that the. Well, I said I guess, but you guys agreed, so we said <laughs> that um, that uh, uh, Midsummer was, or sorry, The Witch was a Deleuze movie and Lighthouse was a Lacanian movie, and I was wondering if this was some other psychoanalytic thinkers. Um, movie because it is very much this bind between, you know, capitalism and desire for sure, you know, capitalism and, and, and the need to, and the need and the want to belong and have family and all that kind of stuff. Marcusa, maybe? I don't know. But some well, of yeah, <laughs> what, I think, yeah, what I think, are the yeah. I think in many ways this is a film about alienation. Yeah. Like, yeah. And what does it mean to actually try and connect? Can it, is it possible to have that family that she talks about, even if we think that scene is a little bit affected and it might just be trying to get in good with the mother-in-law because you need, you're going to need them to help you put the, the, the deposit down on that nice place you've got picked out. Um, is it possible to have a family that way? No. <laughs> that's, that's what this film says. <laughs> and actually, you know, the, the economic considerations of marriage and maybe marriage itself are just a terrible idea. But that isn't a, that doesn't give you a solution to the problem of alienation. So yeah, maybe this is maybe that's one way of thinking about it. Yeah, I definitely mm. think like it's hard it's hard to have a film, uh, you know, like you know as, as Carrie Fisher said about another another film franchise. Uh, it's about family, and I think it's hard to have a film <laughs> um, this dedicated to familial tensions and and an exploration of those and how they play out. Uh, to to the backdrop really of uh, economic concerns, and not start reaching for psychoanalytic frameworks to throw on that because this is like if psychoanalysis has fun anywhere, it's when you have a weird family dynamic and there's a lot of uncomfortable tensions going around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, they have their honeymoon in the fucking house. I mean, and they start having sex, and Helene is watching. Right. I mean, how could you not? <laughs> Like, like, what exactly did you want to right. happen there? And all the also all the housekeepers are dressed up like in this really like sexual oh, yeah. black dress, servants of Satan way. And I mean, it's just yeah. Anyway, and like like at the end, like everyone literally explodes with their vital juices, showering the only exactly. surviving member of <laughs> yeah. the family. And I'm like, I am Splattering. sure that phrase would yield Pornhub results first before anything else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been a trip. This episode has been fun. <laughs> yeah, we we have went places and we have seen things. So, so, so things that we have established: uh, monarchy and aristocracy should not be something that the left is defending. I can't believe I can't believe that needs to be said. Um. <laughs> Uh, 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 capitalism has its own kind of magic, which which we need to know about. And um, Ready or Not is a hell of a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that wraps it up pretty well. <laughs> That's a good place to go. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, uh, Connor, for our listeners um, who uh, for some reason aren't aren't on top of the game yet, where where can we find you and support you online? All right, so my podcast is called Against Everyone with Connor Habib, um, and you can find that anywhere you can find podcasts um and you can also support it and get cool stuff back like curated lists and t-shirts and all that kind of shit for me um on patreon patreon.com forward slash connor habib if you'd like to participate in associative economics <laughs> uh, that's what i'm gonna call patreon <laughs> uh <laughs> it rather than you know but um and uh on twitter at connor habib that's pretty much that's pretty much it Hell yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming by yet again and completing the uh, Connor Habib trifecta. Uh, we look forward <laughs> to having you back for uh, Rise Rise of the Connor Part 1, uh, the Rise prequel the series. Uh, Teen Wolf 2. Yeah. Teen Wolf 2. <laughs> That's actually that would be one I that would be one I would do for sure with you guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Uh, okay, Fast so and Ka- Furious episode Connor Habib drifts. Um <laughs> I'll be back to explain to everybody why the Funny Games remake is far superior to the original. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to leave you guys there with that. I'm going to go now. See you later. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 